0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started with prayer, and then we will dive right in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone who's shown up early to come and learn uh, from your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Lord, and I pray that this topic of angels, demons, spiritual warfare, the unseen realm, that we would uh, come humbly to your word, to, to learn, to engage with this material, because you've revealed it to us for our good, for our upbuilding. So I pray that you would build each of us up in our faith this morning as we learn, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome back um, This is the second session of Against the Darkness, Angels, Demons, and the Unseen Realm, and everything in between. We'll just say everything in between that's uh, interesting, perplexing about the supernatural realm we're seeking to dive into in this class. And before we get going, I just want to do a reminder, a couple of books I want to recommend. One is R.C. Sproul. Unseen Realities. This is uh, Heaven, Hell, Angels, and Demons. So we have this in the bookstore, really helpful, pretty short, kind of goes through the topics we're covering and application. Also another book that we've named the class after, Against the Darkness by Graham Cole. We have this one in the bookstore as well. Um, As we started last week, I I was just reminded that there is so much material on this topic, some of which is good, some of which is not so good, and some of which there's a hit or miss material in between, and it, it's one of those that, you know, you, you can really go on a rabbit hole, like deep dive into one particular voice and listen to them, and like I said, there may be some good things associated with it, but also some things that are, need, need balance, so I just, I recommend these books because these are, these are the ones that I think are most helpful and we have them in the bookstore and there's just, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of questions about the material in that as well. All right, so last week we talked about angels and the unseen realm. That was our topic, kind of thinking about having a supernatural worldview. We talked about how the Bible, uh, there, there's so many things in the Bible that are strange to us, that would not have been strange to the original readers because our worldviews are different. They have a supernatural worldview. And we talked about the importance of this topic and how really if scripture is, is a drama about God and his work in the world, then to appreciate a drama, you need to appreciate all the characters of the drama and while Satan, angels, demons may not be the main characters, they're, they're important characters and they have, they have their role to play. This class, this session is going to cover Satan and demons. So just put on your seatbelt get ready to rock and roll. We're going to dive into Satan, demons, demons. Um, Next week, Jake Simmons is going to teach on how Christ has conquered Satan in his cross and resurrection. Then the last week, I'll teach on spiritual warfare. So kind of like, okay, after Christ has accomplished this work of defeating Satan, what does it look like in our lives practically? What does spiritual warfare look like? But today, we're going to discuss Satan and demons. So some questions we'll consider. Who is Satan why did he fall? What role does he play in the story of scripture, in our lives? Does he really carry a red pitchfork and go around poking people, getting them to do nefarious things? What is a blue devil? I don't know if you ever wanted that, blue, the, the Duke blue devils. I've actually never learned what that means, so sorry. If anybody knows, you can, you can let me know about that. Hopefully, we'll get to some other questions that you guys might have, but what we'll see is that scripture, hey guys, going on in, Um That scripture, it answers a lot of our questions, but actually what we'll find is it makes us have all sorts of other questions of things that we didn't think about, things that God seems to think are more important. So just a brief outline. Like I said, we have some outlines in the back. If you, um, you want to go get one, feel free to get up and go get one. But the outline for today is just some major errors to avoid in thinking about Satan and demons, and then the biblical teaching, what does the Bible say about Satan and demons, and then some implications for discipleship. So all, all doctrine is for discipleship. That, I'm going to say that again. That's, that is critical for a, especially a class like this, where it's topics that seem to be more about, ooh, this is just fascinating material. All doctrine, all true teaching from scripture is for the sake of discipleship. And that's very, that's very important to remember. So we'll, we'll end with some implications for discipleship. But first, some major errors to avoid. This is R.C. Sproul in his book, Unseen Realities. He says this, in church history, there have been two serious distortions about the person and work of Satan. The first common distortion is to minimize his reality or even to deny that he exists and to fail to take him seriously as a real spiritual adversary. The second distortion is to attribute to him greater power and significance than he actually enjoys. So often the church has been influenced by a dualistic perspectives that see the forces of good and evil, light and darkness as equal and opposite powers. And I think of Star Wars, you know, the force, you have like the good side of the force and the bad side of the force, and you're not really sure who's going to win. Some people think about Satan and God that way, as equal and opposite powers, vying for supremacy. But the biblical view knows nothing of such a dualism. Because the contest between God and Satan is no contest at all. I love that. The contest between God and Satan is no contest at all. Satan is a creature. I was thinking about rivalries, you know, the think of the Tennessee-Alabama rivalry. It's not really much of a rivalry because Alabama has just kicked our tails for year after year. But we won last year, which is good. But. That's not really like the battle between God and Satan, this rivalry going on. I, I more think of the, and this isn't a perfect illustration either, but those games where you know, the big school pays a really tiny school to, to come and play them, to get beat by just 100 points over and over again. That, that's, that's, more, that's more of the picture. But even there, it's not perfect because there's still some chance that that small school can win and pull off a major upset. That's not the picture we have all. But the two, the two errors that we have here are minimizing his importance, Satan's importance, even to the point of doubting that Satan is real, um, and maximizing his importance to make it seem like he's kind of behind every corner. You know, I'm afraid to get out in, the, in the, my dark house and go around the corner because Satan might, might be there. In our modern age... I think this first error is probably more prevalent, although not certainly some people may wrestle with the second one, sort of this, we don't take the reality of Satan seriously at all. I mean, kids in our neighborhood for Halloween walking around dressed up as the devil. You know, just think about it. It's like, you have the devil and you have the tooth fairy and they're kind of the same, but kind of in the same realm. It's just some fictional reality we like to poke fun at. And so it's a Halloween costume, right? There's a, a liberal theologian, in the quotes named Rudolf Boltman, who, who said that in a modern age with electricity and modern medicine, you simply can't believe that there's angels and demons running around every corner. We don't believe that. I don't think that's the worldview of the Bible. Jesus certainly did not believe that. When you read the Gospels, Jesus believes that there's demonic presence demonic presence and he's casting out demons. The apostle Peter didn't believe that when he said, Watch out for your adversary that's prowling around like a roaring lion. James, the apostle, didn't believe that when he said, resist Satan and he will flee from you. Paul didn't believe that. He said, don't be ignorant of Satan's schemes, right? So the the modern picture we have of Satan is kind of this, uh, either he's not real or he's just sort of a figment of our imagination. The biblical authors do not agree with that. But some can make the equal and opposite error of of overemphasizing Satan's importance in our lives. They can sensationalize it. And I talked about this a little bit last week with uh, kind of, think about horror movies. You know, you you look and there's a horror movie commercial about demonic possession, and and it's just like, it's so in your face and sensationalized that that's how we think about the devil and his activity. These people see um, the devil is behind every single sin, every single cause of suffering, Everything—it's the devil did it. I don't know. The devil made me do it. That sort of that sort of mentality. But Scripture speaks about Satan and reminds us that he—he's neither of these things, right? We shouldn't sensationalize him. We shouldn't doubt his existence either. Last week we learned about angels. It's important to remember Satan is an angel who has fallen. So ontologically, in his being, who Satan is, he's no more powerful than an angel and not less powerful than an angel. So he may be more powerful than us, but as far as his relationship to God, we we talked about last week the the creator-creature distinction, how this is the most important distinction in all the world. You are either The creator or you are a part of creation. And that is the most fundamental dividing line. And when it comes to Satan, it's important to remember, he is a creature. He's powerful, he's against us, but he is a created being. He is a character in the story that God is telling, that God is sovereign over. Satan's nature is not like God. And I'm really pressing this home at the beginning because it's going to help us as we see the biblical picture. Think about God's omniscience. God, there's no limit to God's knowledge. It's not true of Satan, right? I think it's pretty clear that Satan was at least perplexed or unsure that actually through the cross and resurrection, Jesus was going to crush his head through that. He did not know that was coming. He he doesn't know everything. He's not all powerful, right? And he's not omnipresent. I think that's important. We can think that Satan is sort of, he's here, he's there, he's everywhere. It's not true. It's only true of God. So I share all this to say we should study Satan with sobriety. There should be a certain um, soberness about that. We don't want to be flippant about Satan, but we also don't want to cower in fear. Right, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, and that gives us a lot of confidence. So, uh, next, we want to talk about some names and activities of Satan. This is how Scripture describes this being, and then we're going to walk through the biblical storyline and just see like the role of Satan at each stage of redemptive history. So, names and activities of Satan. I think I have these on your handout. One is the adversary. This is the literal meaning of the word Satan. It means adversary. So Satan, actually, it's, it's not even really a proper noun. So where you're like, oh, this is this character. He's Satan. It's more a title. So you could even translate it like a, the Satan. He is the adversary. It's, it's almost like he doesn't even get a proper name because he's, he's opposed to God and his purposes. Now, it's okay if you use Satan as a name, a title, but the, the way that it's used in scripture is almost just as if he is the adversary, the Satan. And he's the adversary of us, of God's people. He's also called the prince, the prince of darkness. So think of uh, Ephesians 2, that he's the prince of the power of the air. Um, last week, we talked about how some of the God's authority has been delegated to the, to the sons of God, to this divine counsel that's, that's at work in the world. And it's, I think it's clear that Satan, when God calls him the God of this age, quote unquote, he's not the true God, not the God who's over everything, but he has been given authority over this age. Some of the spirits, some of these spirits that God created have gone bad and rule the world in injustice. What's interesting is, I don't know if you guys have um, watched any movies or read anything that talks about like selling your soul to the devil. Have you ever heard of that phrase before? Someone selling your soul to the devil and it, it seems so dark and intense, but actually the reality is for unbelievers, you don't have to sell your soul to the devil. Your soul in a sense is already under the devil's authority, right? That's why in Colossians, it says when we're saved, we're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So that it's, it's actually the picture of the world of unbelief, the world of people not in Christ is in one sense dominated by Satan, by the prince of darkness. Another title for Satan is the tempter. He, he, tempts. He, he wants to lead people astray from God and his word. Another one is deceiver. We're going to see all of this in the storyline of scripture as we walk through scripture, but he is a deceiver. He, he takes he may take something that may be partially true and, and causes people to run with that to the point of imbalancing other truths. I, I think of, when I think of this, think of different cults or, or different religions that, that may kind of start with a grain of something true, but then go off the rails completely, right? That's, Satan is a deceiver. He's an accuser. This, this is interesting. You see this in the book of Job and throughout scripture of Satan. What he does is he, he not only tempts people to sin and leads them away, but then it's like he turns around and starts accusing them for doing what he tempted them to do. So he can tempt somebody so that they sin and oppose God, and then he accuses them by making them feel like, oh, you're not, you're not worthy of God at all. A lot of false guilt. I don't, I don't know if, if you struggle with a, with a guilty conscience, just sort of, I have guilt that can't uh, you know, I believe the gospel cognitively. I believe that I'm not saved by my works, saved by grace, but I just walk around with a guilty conscience. Maybe, maybe that is the work of the adversary, of the accuser, who just wants Christians to be weak and ineffective and feel like I'm, I don't measure up to, to what God has for me. So Those some, are some titles we see. Now, let's see it in scripture and let's let's start let's think about kind of a biblical theology of of Satan. So I have a lot of scriptures referenced here. It's so critical especially with what I shared at the beginning of the distortions that we walk into this class even thinking about Satan that we submit ourselves to God's word and ask okay what does scripture say. So we're going to begin with Satan at creation, kind of before the fall of man, the fall of Satan. Satan, like other angels, he was created good, so in his, his nature was created good. God does not create evil, but through, the, through his own will, he turned against God and rebelled. There's two key texts in the Old Testament that speak about this fall. Now, in their original context, it's talking about uh, so pagan kings and rulers who have turned away from God's purposes. But what's clear in the passage is they're not talking about only earthly rulers. It's, it's language that's clearly talking about Satan himself and his fall. So this is Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. It says this, How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. If you remember from last week, the the star language in the Bible is almost always angelic language. So Job says, when the morning stars came together and the sons of God shouted for joy, star, people thought, represented angels. or it It was like angelic beings in the sky. So, O day star, talking about an angel, son of dawn, how you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, above all the other angels. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan tried, and we have to be careful because scripture doesn't give a whole lot of details about this. So we want to be measured in what we say and what we think about this, but what it appears to be is that Satan tried to ascend up to a position equal with God, and he he wanted to be a God-like figure. But as he did that, as the text said, he was thrown down. Um, I I think there's an application here for us to, to be on guard against pride in our own life. I think pride Pride was one of the key sins of Satan that led to his downfall, right? He, he, thought, he thought more highly of himself than he ought to think. He was a glorious being, but he was still a created being underneath God. The book of Romans says that to us, to, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? It's, it's, it's a warning to us. The higher you climb in pride, the farther you fall right? And that's what happened with Satan. Think of Ezekiel 28, 12 through 16. This is another text that talks about the same event. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You You were an anointed guardian cherub So we talked about, the cherubim and the seraphim last week kind of like throne angels that were associated with God's presence. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There we go. We see again, God only creates that which is good. Tell unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your pride, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Why did Satan fall? That's probably one of the most difficult questions in all theology. Why did Satan fall? Well, says pride, envy, how did he become proud? How did he become envious? These are questions that scripture doesn't come out and answer for us. One hypothesis is that maybe when God created mankind and gave them authority over all the uh, fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, Satan saw that and was, was envious of that sort of authority given to mankind and caused his rebellion. We, we don't know, but that, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis, at least to Consider, But what is clear is that before the fall of man, there was the fall of Satan that came, came beforehand. So next, let's, let's think about Satan and the fall of man. His role in leading us into sin, leading humanity away from God. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 5. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good, uh, knowing good and evil. We see that Satan, he was already in rebellion against God, but he didn't want to be the only rebel against God. He and his fallen angels, he, he's at work. He wanted to, he wanted to recruit humanity to join in his rebellion against God. And so he tempted Eve and led Adam and Eve into sin. The um, image of a serpent, I don't know if you ever wondered like why Why a serpent in the garden? And should we all hate snakes? Can I get an amen? Like I just, does anyone else, does I hate snakes? I I, don't have time for a whole story, but uh, I was just thinking like, I was joking with my kids the other day about, you know, anytime there's a snake out, my wife hates snakes and I have a good friend who loves snakes and he has like, he wants to have a pet snake. And I just think, I think that's wrong. Theologically, that's just wrong. You you shouldn't love snakes. And now I'm just, it's a total joke. That's going too far. It's okay. If you have a pet snake, you're not in sin. If you have a pet snake, okay, Elijah, you're good. You're not in sin. If you have a pet snake, it's all, it's all fine. But the serpent image in the old Testament it would represent either wisdom or possibly death. So in the ancient cultures um, around where the Hebrews lived, serpents were signs of wisdom and signs of death. And you could, you could understand that, right? You think of a snake as someone who's cr- a being that's crafty and a being that causes death. The um, seraphim, this is an angelic being again, if you remember from last week, it literally means something like burning one, and it could be that a seraphim looks like a snake-like creature when, when it appears. So again, we, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but maybe Eve, maybe Eve, recognized that this was some sort of spiritual being that had come. We don't, we don't know what all she was thinking. But you just got to wonder, right? If a snake walks up to you and starts talking, you just think like, what, what would we think? We would think something, something, something supernatural is going on here. Satan tempted Eve by making her distrust God's word and his goodness. That, that's the focus. Did God really say? Now I know it seemed like the command was pretty clear. Don't eat from the tree. But did God really say that? Oh, surely you can see the, the applications for today, right? I know God's, God's plan for marriage seems really clear in scripture, but, but is that what God really said? Did he really say that marriage is just between one man and one woman? And if he did, surely he doesn't want you to be happy, right? You see, you see how that same Lie, that same temptation is at play today. This is um, Gordon Wyndham. He says, Genesis two through3 may also be read as a paradigm for every sin. The essence of sin is rejecting God's commands, preferring human wisdom or devilish wisdom to His. I think we see this at play. In so many ways, like I said, in our culture widely with issues related to sexuality and gender. But let's, let's be careful not to just think about the sins out there. Think about in our own lives how, how we're so quick to justify anger, for, for an example. If, if I'm angry at my spouse or at a friend, we're so fast to blame others and justify ourselves and say, well, they did this to me, so I'm justified in being angry. What is that? That's an accusation. Who's the accuser, right? Or we're deceived into thinking that somebody else's sin in this conflict is so much greater than my own, so therefore I'm justified of being angry and kind of separating myself from them. It's the work of deception we doubt God's word when God's word is, says, if somebody sins against you 77 times, that's what Peter asked Jesus, what should I do? He says, well, you forgive them 77 times. That's what God's word says. But we're tempted to doubt, say, really? Like, should I really forgive that many times? The point is just to show that this work of Satan in the Garden of Eden. It is unique in that Adam and Eve hadn't sinned before that, but that same pattern continues on today. From the beginning, Satan has been a liar, a deceiver, and a disruptor of God's good design and God's people. He is the adversary, the opponent. There's a lot more in the Old Testament that um, speaks about Satan and his role, but I do wanna I do wanna jump ahead to the New Testament and think some about Satan's role because it's kind of like a quantum leap when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament as far as angelic and demonic activity. I mean, it just really gets ramped up and it's kind of around every corner. And I want to read Revelation chapter 12, which. This, this text, there's a lot of details in there we're not gonna get to. I think we'll come back to it in the fourth class. This, this passage of scripture, I think, describes the activity of Satan after Christ's first coming and in between his first coming and his second coming. So just as I'm reading this, this is an apocalyptic vision. It's, it's a picture of of what Satan is up to in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So right now in our, in our lives. So this revelation 12 and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Did you know there's dragons in Scripture? There's a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Again, stars of heaven. What are the stars? They're they're angelic beings, angels in heaven, stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now the, I read this not because I want to go into detail about what does 1260 mean? What are all these, all these details mean? But what's clear is that the child being born is the Messiah. That's, that's Christ being born. He's the one going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the woman is the, what scholars call the messianic community, the, the people of God. So Christ is born as a child of Israel, right? Child of Abraham. And then what, what's happening here is Satan is almost waiting, like a, like a predator in the woods, waiting for Christ to be born. And then when he's born, he's, leashing, he's lashing out in attacks. So think about that as you read the gospels. Think about King Herod. Right? In and, and the Gospel of Luke, when every child, uh, I guess it was two years or younger, is ordered to be killed in order to kill this so called king of the Jews. You really think that was just Herod? I think what this is saying is there's so much more going on behind the scenes than what meets the eye, than a political ruler is trying to take out Jesus, right? I think that's the, that's the dragon at work, wanting to to take him out. Then Satan tempts Christ in the wilderness. Matthew 4 saying, if you just, if you bow down to me, I'll give you everything now. Satan's at work in Jesus' life. And And then Satan deceives Judas, tempts Judas to give Christ up, to betray him. Thinking, thinking, oh, now's the time. Now's the time when victory is going to be one And we know that Christ, through his cross and resurrection, actually crushed the head of the serpent, right? That Genesis 3 promise of, I will put enmity between you, your seed and the woman's seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So Jesus is the, is the, the snake crusher, the one who destroys the dragon, the one who throws him down. But then, and i'm not going to go on and read the rest of the chapter but what happens is after this the dragon turn he knows okay i can't get i can't get the son who was born he was caught up to god in heaven that's a picture of he died but then he was resurrected and ascended to heaven but now i'm going to go after i'm going to go after the woman and her offspring so the church that still that still survives and is and is active in the world. This dragon is at work, still tempting, still making war on our offspring. That makes sense of so much of the New Testament's calls to be alert to the schemes of the devil, to, to watch out, to, to, keep, uh, to yeah, keep your eye on his schemes and works. Okay, so we... We good with Satan, kind of his, his, his uh, some of his names, his titles, he's the adversary, and all of this, he's still doing the same works of tempting and accusing, right? We, we just, you have to remember, if you're watching, again, we talked about horror movies last class, but if you watch, if you watch The Exorcist, and you just think, oh, this is Satan that's, that's at work, um, maybe but that's also a very very limited like slice of his activity think no if i'm hearing about a church that's beginning to teach false doctrine okay that's satan at work that's how satan deceives and begins to lead astray that is him it sounds so mundane but that is the dragon making war against us. Does that make sense? Okay, briefly, briefly, talk about demons uh, as Satan's entourage, is what I'm gonna call them, his, his, the other stars that are swept down. Throughout, throughout scripture, de- Satan can't be everywhere at once, we talked about that, um, but demons are at work in the world as well. They incite false worship. So in Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 32, the, the biblical authors make a connection between the idols of the nations and demons. That's what's really behind them. I, I remember traveling to um, India on a mission trip, and we went to like a temple where people were worshiping this statue, right? And it's not the statue itself, but it's the power that's behind it and that it comes down into the statue as they worship. And I think the biblical perspective would be that that is demon worship and that really going on. It's not just empty, uh, kind of meaningless rituals that is demonic activity. Demons possess individuals in the new Testament. Um, they, they bind people. Now, a common question is, what about believers? I, it, it doesn't appear that believers can be possessed by demons, um, just being filled with the spirit, right? I don't, I don't think we could be filled with demonic spirits. But they do cause what I think it would call structural sin in society. That they cause, they cause sin to be normalized in cultures, their their principalities and powers. I mean, think about, again, we don't want to draw hard conclusions, but think about the warfare that's going on now in the world. Think about any manner of political conflict, unrest. Think about political injustice. Think about all of these seeming like structural sin and oppression and injustice think that is in part the work of these principalities and powers, these demonic spirits that are at work in the world. So let's let's conclude with just a few implications. That, That was a lot of material and want to just some concluding applications, thoughts. So one, recognize and resist the work of Satan and his demons. We have an enemy who's real, who is ferocious, but we can resist him in the power of the Spirit through reading God's word, doing the ordinary means of grace to, to keep ourselves in the truth. Two, remember that Satan is God's Satan. He he is under God's control, under God's thumb. He's a dragon, yes, but he's a dragon on a leash. He's not, he he can't do one more thing than God allows him to do. And third, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. There's a great scene in the gospels where the disciples go out and they have authority over demons. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I think the point is, Rejoice that whether you feel like I'm victorious over Satan and his demons and his schemes, or I'm just, I'm a Christian, I'm struggling to get by, I'm struggling in my faith. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven and the blood of Christ covers every single mistake, every sin. I want to conclude with uh, Martin Luther so Martin Luther would be one who I think might lean on overemphasizing the work of Satan. He said at one point that Satan is closer than your clothes. It's like, I, I, I don't know if that's actually true, biblically speaking, but it may be a helpful balance to kind of work out our secular imbalance with Satan. But he was a man who really believed that there was a battle waging going on between God and Satan, and I think that's true. He wrote a hymn based off of Psalm 46 that I think you'll recognize. A- after he died, his disciples were discouraged, or his followers, the reformers were discouraged, thinking, is the Reformation going to go on now that Luther has died? Philip Melanchthon, his friend, colleague, his um, His student would say, Let's sing the 46th. You know, when we get discouraged, not sure it's going to work out, let's sing the 46th. Let's sing the hymn written based off of Psalm 46. And I think it's a good way to conclude our time thinking about Satan as a real enemy, but as one who's defeated. So, what are the words to this hymn? I think you'll recognize it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. We're, we're We're not equal to Satan in this battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, this, this dragon's rage, we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The one who is in us is greater than the one that is in the world. So we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to destroy our faith, but we also have power that transcends that enemy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Thank you that Christ has come and crushed the serpent's head help us to resist him firm in our faith this morning as we sing your praises and are reminded of your truth and your goodness help us believe and as we resist the devil he will flee from us because of Christ so help us do that we pray in Jesus name amen amen thank you so much for coming next week Jake will teach on Christ and Satan and then the next week will be spiritual warfare You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.